0: Welcome to Translation. I'm your host, Seth Bannon, a founding partner at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Translation is the process of turning basic scientific research into therapies that cure disease, new sources of energy that heal the planet, and other things that move the world forward. This podcast takes a deep dive into scientific achievements with huge potential to improve society. We talk directly with the people advancing the science with their own hands and minds and focus on how we can translate the science from the bench to the benefit of all. Welcome to Translation.
1: Behind every success, there are people with the courage to try, try, try. Okay.
0: of energy, to fix the carbon in our atmosphere, to cure disease.
2: Hey everyone, it's your boy Michael Chavez, fellow at 50 Years, graduate student at Stanford University and co-host of Translation. Today we are chatting with Nima Amami, co-founder and CEO of Avail. Antibodies are one of the greatest tools we have in our therapeutic arsenal and have transformed the way we treat cancer and autoimmunity. But we still largely develop these drugs using guess and check methods, massively slowing down the process. However, our own B-cells are constantly making new antibodies against the pathogens and diseases we experience, creating a goldmine of drugs floating around inside all of us. Utilizing the founder's deep experience in computational and systems immunology, Avail's platform massively screens the antibody repertoire of patients who have cleared disease. With it, they find ready-to-deploy antibody drugs that could treat everything from cancer to
0: autoimmunity and even reprogram our own immune systems. So Nima, thanks so much for joining us on Translation. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Big fan of the pod. (laughs) (laughs) So we're really excited to jam about the incredible science that you're pushing for now. But first, let's go way back. What got you interested in science in the first place?
1: Yeah, you know, to be completely honest, it probably was started as the thing that I felt like I was good at. But eventually it grew to be the thing that I really loved. And I think probably the thing that got me the most interested along the way was the Human Genome Project. Mm. And I remember being in seventh or eighth grade and seeing this documentary where it was all about the Genome Project and it visualized the human genome as this stack of papers that was just filling up the entire volume of like this incredibly large room. And I think just the sheer volume of data And sequencing that was being conducted at that time just got me interested and and inspired. And, you know, I took a winding path, but eventually ended up actually working with the type of genomic data that we were aspiring to generate and map during that time. So it really came full circle. But I would say the genome project was incredibly impactful.
0: must have been cool to see that documentary and realize like those stacks of information
1: are inside all of our bodies. In every single cell. Yeah. You know, and actually, that idea made its way into my PhD dissertation at UCSF in the forward. I tried to actually think about how do we communicate the scale of biology? What's the sheer number of cells? What's the sheer number of nucleic acids in every single cell? except red blood cells and (laughs) you know what does that actually amount to and it's you know quintillions of different molecules in our body and, and that are all sort of autonomously doing their own thing so I still find the the sheer scale of it incredibly exciting and impactful and now you know we're developing technologies that can actually approximate that complexity and start to actually translate that data into solutions for patients. That's wild. So why did you choose to go deeper via graduate school? Yeah, you know, I think that it wasn't my natural inclination to do so, but after even just one semester of my undergraduate, I realized, you know, eight semesters wasn't going to be enough to learn the things that you needed to learn to actually do something useful. And part of it was working in a lab, being around PhD candidates, and just realizing you know, the level that they were at and how far I was away from it. So I think that, you know, it, it was just clear to me that biology, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And hopefully, eventually, you reach some useful plateau. And I felt like the PhD was going to be incredibly important to to reach that. And I don't know that I have yet, but definitely well on my way. So what did you study during
0: your, your PhD program? And, and why did you choose that?
1: I did my undergraduate at UC Berkeley. You know, Berkeley, I would say, hangs its hat on a lot of different areas of research, you know, with funding from the Department of Energy, collaborations with the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, a lot of, you know, particle physics, but not very much by way of disease-oriented research all the time. Berkeley definitely has fantastic groups in that area and Nobel Prize winning ones for that matter. But UCSF was an institution where... Health is the language of the university from top to bottom. And no matter you know what you're doing, whether it's research in the School of Nursing, or whether it's epidemiology research on health disparities, either locally or nationally, or even cutting edge basic science that it might someday be translated into something useful for disease, it just felt like that mission really drew me in. And it was definitely the sort of thing I was looking for. So I ended up uh, attending the the program in biological and medical informatics, kind of marrying my training and my interest in computer science with also the, the training I had had in bioengineering, working in the wet lab. And that led me to work in the cancer center at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. And work with genomes from patients with cancer. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with cancer, without cancer, and using the latest next-generation sequencing data sets and technologies to tease apart, why do some people get cancer and other people don't? And, you know, why are some forms of that more aggressive versus more benign? Those were the sorts of questions that we were interested in. And we tried to use, you know, a lot of the most sort of -of state-of-the-art data sets to be able to tease apart that question of why. I love, by the way, that we have
0: in the Bay Area what may be the the premier center for bioengineering applied to industrial applications, which is UC Berkeley, like a stone's throw away of arguably the premier institution for bioengineering as applied to health at UCSF. So when you were starting your PhD program, did did you know that you wanted to start a company someday? Were, Were you always interested in entrepreneurship or did that just come later?
1: Yeah, you know, believe it or not, That was actually part of the reason why I chose UCSF is, you know, I grew up here in the San Francisco Bay Area. My parents are both engineers, but they're also, you know, immigrants to this country. So, you know, I think that confluence of a lot of different factors motivated me to think about being able to kind of take a risk, do something that, you know, maybe my parents didn't have the opportunity to, and try to kind of challenge myself intellectually, and also challenge myself in terms of making forays into how to apply science to business. So it was something I looked for in a graduate program. And it was clear that UCSF was supportive of those types of opportunities through the different resources, including QB3. Quantitative Biosciences Consortium, and also the UCSF Entrepreneurship Center. You know, those types of resources really drew me into a program like UCSF's and made it clear that, you know, I would have the opportunity to build a network here in the Bay Area. But, you know, you never know whether the opportunity will ultimately present itself at the end of that, you know, special PhD rainbow, right? And a lot of different factors had to come together. A lot of people kind of sacrificed alternative opportunities and, you know, ultimately, the science needed to be there, the data needed to be there. And, you know, so it, it wasn't totally clear that all those factors would come together. But ultimately, when the opportunity presented itself, I felt like I was ready to take the leap.
0: Where did your parents uh, immigrate from?
1: Yeah, they're both from Iran. And so, you know, they they both came interestingly enough, to the country around the time of the Iranian revolution, either a little bit before or a little bit after. And, you know, Iran, uh, believe it or not, has some of the premier kind of educational institutions in the world. Best electrical engineers in the world. Undoubtedly. Yes, sir. And so, you know, it, it turns out that you know, one of Iran's biggest exports isn't just pistachios, but it's also a fantastic engineers to a lot of the top graduate programs in the United States. And so my, my parents both ended up pursuing graduate education, met each other at Stanford. And so I ended up growing here. And went on to have very prestigious careers here, right? Yeah, you know, both sort of entrepreneurial in their own right. You know my dad is part of a, a small company that develops, you know, software for engineering kind of applications, but he also teaches at Stanford University and he also writes a textbook and he he keeps himself busy in a lot of different ways. My mom on on the other hand is is a force of nature who, you know, I don't I don't think she'll ever be able to retire, you know, from you know a lot of the different things she she does, but she's a a chemical engineer by training who who is a manager and executive at Intel. Cool. And that uh, you also keep
0: yourself busy now as the uh, co-founder and CEO of a company called Avail Bio, which is really a, a sort of outgrowth of your academic research. What was the the moment during your research where you said, aha, I think there might be a startup here?
1: Yeah, you know, it was probably a few different moments. But, you know, the way that we sort of arrived at the idea was that, you know, we I, fe- I feel like we were always kind of spitballing ideas to each other for, oh, wouldn't it be cool if someone did that? You know, sometimes we would make fun of companies all having the same sort of name, you know, ending with the L-Y suffix. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we were always sort of around entrepreneurship, being here in San Francisco for our PhD. So I think ultimately what came together was some exciting research that was happening at UCSF and Chan Zuckerberg Biohub around using novel genomic technologies to be able to capture exceptionally profound immune responses in patients with disease and also in factors that were happening out in the biotech sphere around new therapies that were being not only developed but being widely adopted for cancer that were leveraging the immune system to drive kind of an anti-tumorogenic immune response in the body itself. So I, I would say it was, you know, a few different factors, but ultimately it was kind of a hey, what if you took A plus B, you know, would that equal something of value? And, you know, the, the combination of the technology and the application felt like it was novel. So, you know, we didn't see other people doing this sort of thing. And we thought, you know, why not us?
0: There's a great saying that, you know, your company is your team. And, you know, I think the absolute most important part of the team to get right is the founding team. So how did you think through who you'd want to start this company with?
1: You know, there's definitely a lot of factors that go into choosing the founding team. You know, for us, it was not only complementary expertise. so you know finding people who might have complementary talents, whether it comes to presenting, whether it comes to thinking about business and then obviously you know rolling up your sleeves and really working with the data, getting in the wet lab and, and working with new technologies. But I would say also just you know part of our strength has been a pre-existing relationship that has a really strong foundation of trust and, and mutual respect. And with our team of co-founders, you know, there, there has been a lot of trust in terms of making decisions and, you know, trusting each other, both technically and in terms of the direction of the business that everyone is, has each other's best interests at heart. And, you know, part of it is really, you know, let's keep this going. Let's, let's keep working together. Let's enjoy our time working together. And let's do that in a way that is commercially viable so that we have the opportunity to take this the long haul and hopefully build an important company.
0: So you're at the point where you have promising tech, you know, inspiring vision and a team. At that point, you could stay in academia and continue to sort of push the project forward inside UCSF or jump and start a company. How did you think through that choice?
1: You know, believe it or not, people tried to present both paths to us, even, even at the very earliest stages of you know, UCSF has supported entrepreneurial ventures within the university. Some of those have ended up reaching profitability, and they've become profit drivers. And so, you know, I think that that was part of the calculus of, you know, do you want to continue de-risking the platform and the approach in academia? Do you want to leverage all of the fantastic resources of a top university like a UCSF or a Berkeley or Stanford? But, you know, I think that for us, it felt like the time was right to raise venture capital, even at the earliest stage, because there had been several years of research around the technology already. So we weren't starting from zero. I think going from zero, it does make sense. And and I've actually urged some UCSF students to, hey, work within the confines of the university, de-risk the idea, use the core facilities, use the IP office. I mean, there's so much that the university has to offer. And I think that we were able to benefit from those resources while also, you know, trying to take the next leap towards becoming a commercial entity. Ultimately, support from Illumina's corporate startup accelerator was essential as kind of the first lily pad coming from academia and that allowed us to then advance to the next lily pad of being able to, you know, raise a, a institutional seed round and make a a ton of progress with with a small amount of seed capital. So in this process of spinning out, did you need to negotiate with either your PI or the the university at at all around IP? There were IP discussions. I think that the IP for our specific technology was a little bit complex in that there were certain things that were out there in the wild already. And so it, it was a very kind of conscious process of making sure that we weren't infringing on any IP that had been formed at the university, working with the university to clear out any conflicts. And we continue to have a really fantastic relationship with UCSF and with Chan Zuckerberg Biohub as well.
0: Was there anything challenging about that process of dealing with the university tech transfer office?
1: Yeah, I think the challenging part is probably the speed because they when you're at a university like a UCSF there are a lot of inventions that are happening and you know UCSF being a public a publicly funded institution you know they're unfortunately understaffed when it comes to just dealing with the magnitude of innovation that's really flowing out of all of the creative minds at the university. So I would say it's not any fault of, of theirs, but you know becoming a priority for a university tech transfer office, you know you, you kind of earn that over time and part of that is is get, getting the traction of being part of a, a, an Illumina accelerator or a YC or an IndieBio. And, you know, ultimately raising a venture around, then you really start to become part of that sort of next tier of companies where it's clear that the university uh, has to be paying attention to you a little bit more.
0: Let's get something on the calendar for next month is considered uh, quite speedy in the world of academia. And when you're trying to start a company, it's just it's just an eternity.
1: So l- let's talk about where you are
0: now. In a few sentences, what do you and your company do?
1: Yeah, so Avail is a company that is focused on immunologic disease. And, you know, what we're doing is developing a new way to discover therapeutic assets and targets from the disease immunology of actual patient samples. So, you know, I think that it strikes us that when it comes to diseases of the immune system, pretty much any disease you can think of, we've probably cured it 10 times over in mice. And, you know, if you're on Twitter, check out the Twitter handle just says in mice, because, you know, this is a a sort of a classic problem in the field that we're able to sort of model and we're able to cure diseases in mice that just ultimately don't translate into humans. And yet when it comes to biotech, you see, you know, uh, company after company that is just turning the crank with the same approach, with the same technologies on a different target in a different disease. And the results continue to not translate. So, you know, no, no surprise that the probability of, of success, of, of therapeutic and technical success when it comes to going to the clinic is remains extraordinarily low. And in spite of all of the innovations that we've had in genomic technology, we haven't been able to really move the needle there. So, you know, our approach to that, you know, Avail takes a very different approach, which is, you know we believe that humans are the best model system when it comes to curing human disease. But we need, you know, as a field and as as a society, we need the right technologies when it comes to actually how do you how do you find the right level of abstraction of the biology that's actually directly impactful towards disease? And how do you develop the right technologies to capture at that level of granularity? So you know, ultimately with the veil, what we have now is a platform technology that from end to end takes in blood samples from a patient with disease and ultimately translate that into de-risked therapeutic assets and targets that then we can develop against to try to improve that probability of therapeutic and technical success when it comes to inhuman clinical trials. Awesome. So let's decompose some of this, right? So the blood contains tons of stuff, right? From red
2: blood cells to white blood cells to just a bunch of circulating other proteins and metabolites. What are you specifically zooming in on in the blood?
1: Yeah, our, our window when it comes to the the blood and when it comes to the immune response has been B cells and the antibodies that, that are generated by those B cells. So this is actually, you know, there's been a lot of work in immunology over the past decade. A lot of that has been focused on T cells. So T cells are the kind of uh, brother or sister cells of, of B cells collectively, they comprise your adaptive immune response. So, you know, these are the cells that they can recognize some sort of foreign pathogen that they've never seen before and mount an effective immune response to be able to target it and eliminate it. There's been a lot of research and progress with T cell biology over the past decade or so. And for good reason, you know, it's given us cell therapies like CAR-T. It's given us incredible cancer therapeutics like checkpoint blockade. But the result is that B cells have really been overshadowed. And yet B cells have incredible properties and advantages, both in terms of the basic biology and in terms of kind of a direct path to drug discovery and target discovery. So, you know, that's sort of part of our unique immunologic rationale with the veil is being able to be the leader in profiling the B-cell and antibody immune response.
2: I love that, and you've actually taught me a lot about how B-cells are involved in cancer, right? And didn't, you know, we think about them from a viral case often, and especially with COVID-19 right now, you know, we think about how they're generating uh, antibodies against the particle itself to make sure they're protecting you. Can you kind of dig into what are some of the roles that B-cells play in fighting cancer, more specifically?
1: Yeah, so so B-cells have a lot of different roles, as is the case with most things in biology, it's not exactly black or white, you know, any sort of cell type, or, you know, even a specific protein that you focus on, if you Google it, it'll say, oh, yeah, this promotes cancer. And then there's a chorus of other papers saying, no, actually, this is a, is a tumor suppressor. So B cells, on one hand, are essential in mounting an adaptive immune response against not only pathogens like you know pathogenic bacteria or you know any sort of infectious disease but also cancer cells and you know their role in cancer has been really emerging over decades of research but now i think has reached the point where it's clear that they have in, in a very important and impactful role and what that is is not only recognizing foreign looking antigens that are that are created by cancer. You know, cancer inevitably is mutating all of these different new targets that your immune system can recognize, but it's also presenting those to other cells. So B cells can act as antigen presenting cells, not only directly attacking, but also stimulating an immune response from other immune actors. And maybe one of the most unique properties of B cells is that Although they're, they are of your adaptive immune response, they're also essential for your innate immune response. And they are a driver when it comes to mobilizing other cell types like natural killer cells, like macrophages, like neutrophils, basophils, you name it. Pretty much B cells and antibodies are a beacon that draws these innate immune cells towards cancer. We've seen that in the clinic now, and, you know, it's really a compelling opportunity to unlock not only adaptive immunity, but also innate immunity. Love that. So let's let's like dive into that first one, right? You know, there's a lot baked into exactly
2: how an antibody is generated against a specific target. So can you tell us a little bit about how our B cells, uh, and I'm going to put air quotes around here so I don't piss off any immunologists listening, but how B cells evolve to recognize something like COVID-19 or like cancer?
1: Yeah, so there's several different steps in their evolution, but you know, what basically at day zero, you have this highly diverse repertoire of all of these different B cells. And each one has a unique antibody sequence that they encode and that they ultimately generate and secrete into your blood. So, you know, that's step one is being able to have that sort of diverse repertoire of all these different B cells. And, you know, unfortunately, Sometimes you don't have the right balance in that repertoire between being able to detect foreign targets and pathogens versus innate uh, sort of biology of, of self antigens. So part of the immune response is being able to properly calibrate the balance of we want to attack the foreign things. But we don't want to attack our own cells. We don't want to attack self-targets that are expressed in our tissues around the body. So this is all part of the developmental kind of journey of a B cell is being able to form this diverse repertoire that's perfectly calibrated between self and and non-self. And ultimately sending these things out into the body to be able to find foreign pathogens be able to, you know, aggregate at uh, lymph nodes and form uh, what are called GCs or germinal centers to be able to not only be able to recognize foreign pathogens, but then ultimately mobilize other cells, be able to expand and clonally kind of proliferate to be able to really effectuate a, a robust immune response against Things that they're finding in the body.
2: Understand. So we're kind of born with everything we can potentially bind. We prune off the ones that might be, you know, a, a little bit uh, deleterious to our health. And then we hopefully promote the ones that, you know, as a pathogen comes in, you know, they expand and we can keep those moving forward to create our own immunity against it. Absolutely. Cool. And so, you know, B cells can create these antibodies that fight cancer, right? And so how do you leverage this fact to generate a, a therapeutic?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think that B cells, when it comes to cancer, they're actually maybe the perfect way to discover the targets of your immune system. So there's been a lot of research over the past decade on something called a neoantigen. So neo being new, meaning some sort of mutant that's kind of newly explored or introduced by cancer, by all the mutations that happen in cancer. And antigen is sort of the target of an antibody. So if you have an antibody, the thing that it's going after is called the antigen. So neoantigens are introduced in cancer. We know that they can drive your immune response towards cancer. and But a lot of that research has been, again, in the T cell compartment. So it's been, you know, understanding how T cells recognize these sort of new targets that are arising in cancer and kind of attack and mobilize them. The problem is that when it comes to T cells, they are difficult to assay and it's very laborious and not scalable to be able to figure out what are the actual targets of your T cells in your immune response. So B cells on the other hand provide a really convenient way to be able to assay those targets because they generate and secrete antibodies. You know, all the different antibodies that are generated against cancer in principle are being shed into your blood and in many cases, remain there for extended periods of time. And those B-cells remain in your immune system in the form of what's called a memory B-cell. So, you know, being able to sort of recognize cancer isn't just the role of T-cells. B-cells are also essential for T-cell development and maturation. And they end up being a really convenient mirror Of not only the T cell response, but also new antigens that arise in cancer that are uniquely recognized by those B cells and their antibodies. I still like blows
2: my mind that right now, anybody who's overcome a disease, you know, likely has antibodies just kind of floating around them ready to be leveraged by biotech to to kind of create a therapeutic. It's like I still get. As you can hear, I'm all tongue tied just even talking about it because it really, really excites me. Yeah. So you actually the linchpin to all this would be to actually figure out a way to pull out these B cells, right? You need to find these B cells in a very complex uh, a system in your body. So you created a brilliant three-step process to hunt these tumor-clearing antibodies. So I'd love if you could tell me, how, do you, how does your platform work and what kind of tech did you need to build to get there?
1: Yeah, thanks. So, you know, it's a three-step process that we've implemented with the platform technology out of Veil. Vale. And what it breaks down to is step one, target discovery, step two, target validation, and step three, translate those targets into a therapeutic asset. So step one is based on the research that was happening at UCSF Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. And essentially what they were doing was, you know, using next generation sequencing to profile all of the different targets of your antibodies simultaneously using genomics. And, you know, we were excited about that research we connected with some of the leaders of that research effort at UCSF. And we said, how can we work together to form the next generation of this technology that's going to be even more incredibly sensitive and impactful when it comes to complex diseases like cancer and like autoimmune diseases? So in doing so, we really you know, put our, our heads together and formed step one of our kind of platform technology, which we call SonarSeq. So SONAR stands for Surveillance of Novel Antibody Repertoires, and what we're doing there is using these engineered libraries of millions of different immune targets, each of which has a DNA barcode, to profile quantitatively the immune response of a patient, of a patient's blood sample, against this vast library of of genetic and proteomic diversity. And so at the conclusion of that process, you've identified a target. That's step one is sonar-seek target discovery. Step two is what we call cortex. So cortex isn't target discovery. Cortex is target validation and mechanistic inference. And that's where we've tried to leverage the kind of latest technologies in computational biology and incorporate it with not only our in-house sonar data sets, but also external genomic data sets to be able to de-risk the mechanism for novel sonar targets that we see in patients and be able to actually translate that into a set of therapeutic leads that then we have a lot of conviction and data around developing against for the final step. So step one, sonar target discovery. Step two, cortex target validation. Step three is where we take those sonar targets and we translate them into therapeutic assets in what we call squid seek so squid is an NGS-based assay where SQUID stands for Single Cell Unique Immunoglobulin Identification where we ultimately say, okay, let's just not profile and pinpoint targets from the immune response of a patient. Let's actually pull out the actual B cells that are generating those antibodies because those B cells hold the source code for a potential therapeutic asset. And you know, these assets and these B cells are just, uh, to your point, they're there in the broader population, in patients with disease, in patients without disease. What is that sort of special immune response that we can discover that might hold the immune secrets to treat a disease for another patient, for another person who presents with a given disease? And SquidSeq is the kind of the, the final step of that process of pinpointing novel targets, de-risking them using kind of the best-in-class computational algorithms and data sets, and then ultimately translating that into something which we can validate in a mouse, and then ultimately back into a human where they belong.
0: Sonar, squid seek, A plus for method acronym <laughs> naming there.
1: It's all the phishing expedition, right? It definitely <laughs> ties into that. Well, that's exactly the idea, is that even the leading companies today drug discovery remains a fishing expedition. And this is sort of that problem of we develop these therapeutics based on data in mice and then we try to take them into humans and you see this massive fall off in terms of their efficacy. So, you know, if we can kind of do a better job of profiling that ocean using sonar of all of these different antibodies, all these different B cells, and then using cortex, which actually stands for computational target intelligence to validate those targets and be able to you know really narrow down into a set of the most promising candidates Ultimately, with Seek, we can go and we can pull out the giant squid, that kind of evasive creature that lies at the, the depth of the ocean, to be able to translate something which you know other technologies and other companies haven't previously been able to capture. That's the idea with sonar and then ultimately with squid is let's see if we can dive deeper. Let's see if we can be smarter about the way that we're discovering drugs.
2: How would we traditionally find cancer fighting antibodies and why is this approach so much better?
1: Well, you know, I think A lot of the failures of clinical stage programs in cancer in humans can be traced back to, in many cases, the failure of the mouse models to faithfully recapitulate the cancer biology or the immunobiology that we see in humans. So this is a very common complaint from drug companies, from drug developers, is, gosh, you know, we just don't really know how to interpret that preclinical mouse data. There's a number of different targets where people might develop uh, an antibody against a particular target on a cancer cell. But, you know, you have to be able to show that it works in mice. And then ultimately we end up really indexing on the success or failure in those mice. But, you know, we're not developing drugs for mice. We're trying to develop drugs ultimately for humans. So, you know, I think our approach and how it might be different from that kind of traditional approach of, you know, just choose a target, develop an antibody, show its ability to work in a mouse, and then ultimately, you know, pray, <laughs> pre- pray, and and use that as the lens of clinical stage development is, you know, if we can discover some activity, some kind of novel therapeutic biology or insight directly from human antibodies that we already have that are circulating in our, in our bloodstream, you know, 24 hours a day, then you know maybe we can find some targets some opportunities some mechanisms of action that are more translatable and you know and the targets that we see ultimately mirror those as far as the mechanism may mirror those kind of traditional mechanisms that are attractive for drug development but you know may point us towards a slightly different target or a slightly different setting you know maybe the colon cancer mouse model works like gangbusters but you know maybe colon cancer if you were to look in humans actually isn't the most promising strategy. And we've seen that time and time again, you know, with immunotherapy, the, you know, the big kind of a blockbuster that that launched the immunotherapy era was ipilimumab, which is uh, an antibody which is targeted against a protein called CTLA-4, which is expressed primarily on, on T regulatory cells. You know, that therapy was initially taken into humans in prostate cancer. In fact, from some of our colleagues at UCSF, Eric Small, who was one of the, the principal investigators of that clinical trial, prostate cancer is nowhere close to being the most promising, you know, clinical stage opportunity for that. Kind of therapy. In fact, skin cancer, melanoma ended up being kind of the killer app, for lack of a better word. But, you know, the mouse data pointed towards prostate, and there was an incredible amount of effort that went into thinking about prostate and other urologic diseases. So, you know, it's just can we kind of avoid that wild goose chase? Totally. Of, you know, the wrong target. The wrong clinical development strategy, the wrong kind of interpretation of the mechanism of action, the wrong kind of biomarker indicated subpopulation—you know, those are all of the things that I think come what's uh, come somewhat organically out of our platform technology. In that we're doing this discovery in humans, we're trying to look at that relevant in human biology, cancer biology, immunobiology. And it points us towards that more human relevant clinical development path. So just to make sure I understand
2: there, it's like, because you have the metadata, right, that comes with the samples that you're pulling these antibody sequences out of, you're able to, in a way, be able to kind of clear out the wrong indication. So in your CTLA-4 example, you think you would have seen CTLA-4, something like that in the melanoma patients immediately and not in the prostate cancer patients and therefore you knew that you should be pointing that kind of antibody towards melanoma am i am i correct in my thinking there
1: yeah you know i think it's it's you know th- there's ultimately a question in terms of in a in a phase 2 trial like what type of cancer or what type of disease, you know, indication do you focus on? And, you know, part of that is what's the disease period? Is it prostate cancer? Is it kidney cancer? Is it breast cancer? And you know, sometimes people will hedge with like a phase one basket design that, you know, has, you know, just a few patients from each type of, but you know, ultimately you're talking about n of one or n of two data points. And then you make tens of millions of dollars decisions based on that very, very limited data. And so, you know, you, you combine that with the mouse models that have their problems a priori, and it, it just leads to a lot of guesswork. And, and no surprise that, you know, drug development, the failure rates are incredibly high. You know, the cost of bringing a drug to market is incredibly high. A lot of that hinges on the, again, the translatability of the early preclinical data to that clinical stage setting. And so with starting kind of in humans. From clinical biospecimens, from clinical blood samples from patients, which are the kind of the lifeblood of a Vales platform technology you know, I think we can try to avoid some of those, you know, not mistakes, but, you know, just the the search process to just try to really just expedite and just make it that much more efficient and just incisive on like, how do we get towards the answer more quickly? Totally. And and so you you just talked a little bit about mechanisms, which which I think is a really interesting piece, right? Because
2: it's a bit of, you know, most of the antibodies we think of in terms of cancer are kind of just binding a a cancer antigen and hopefully like strangling the cells. But, you know, we're also seeing more things of like, if you in, directly target the immune cells versus the cancer and then the, the immune cells can do a better better job at what they do and, and start and fighting fighting your disease mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what's popping out of this platform, right? Are, are they all just working in the simplest fashion of this binding and strangling, or are you noticing some more sophisticated mechanisms popping out?
1: Yeah, all of the above. So the the simple thing and the sophisticated thing, you know, the, we we see those. And, you know, I think it in, in principle, it speaks to the benefit of an unbiased approach where, you know, you're not biasing it just towards this kind of target that you read some paper about, and that's you're kind of going all in on that you know, we are looking broadly, but, you know, we, in terms of the targets that patients have of their antibodies, which hit every different type of protein in the body. And, you know, some of those are immune markers. Some of those are circulating factors, which either kind of activate or inhibit immune cells. And in some of them are legitimate tumor antigens that are kind of highly expressed on different types of tumors. And, you know, where we see certain subsets of patients where it looks like that could be know, especially implicated or especially kind of efficacious therapeutically.
2: I found that so interesting because anytime, you know, I take an immunology class, you know, and they always start with, you know, all of the clearing mechanisms your body has to make sure that your B cells don't target any uh, natural protein in your body. There's so much checks and balances to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yet you're showing that your, your uh, body is making these, you know, perfect antibodies against these really great immune targets, which in theory shouldn't have happened. So I'm very, very interested in that mechanism.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the mechanism Mechanism that you're referring to here is essential for being able to balance between autoimmunity and anti-tumor immunity or productive and protective immunity. And in that that's kind of really just boils down to weeding out the B cells that are quote unquote auto-reactive, meaning that they, if they are allowed to proliferate and secrete antibodies, it may lead to autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a balance in terms of how do we kind of appropriately mitigate against auto reactive kind of autoimmunity while still, you know, kind of maintaining that possibility of recognizing these aberrant forms of these proteins that may kind of be either present in cancer or, you know, even normal proteins that are just highly, highly overexpressed in cancer at at levels that are crazy in the context of what you would normally see in biology. So, But, you know, everyone has some level, healthy patients, you know, we all have these quote unquote auto antibodies that hit these different forms of, of these, even these normal proteins in our bodies and we just often don't really even know what what they're doing you know we know that in patients with autoimmune disease they can drive that autoimmune pathology so they can make the disease worse and you know there's a linear correlation between the level of that you know certain autoimmune patient would have of that of that particular autoantibody and the severity of the disease that they have but healthy patients have them as well, right? So, you know, in terms of what they're actually doing in healthy patients and what they might be doing in diseases outside of autoimmunity, there's still a lot of questions to answer there. But you know, that's where we are kind of developing those best in class kind of capabilities to be able to look very broadly and be able to tie that to an actual kind of clinically relevant, biologically relevant kind of target and outcome. You know, it's all about having that right level of granularity. Yeah,
2: no, I think it's really exciting, because you might be able to show that your body is in fact making its own immunotherapies. And, and that might be a mechanism of why we have and I, I find that so super, super fascinating. I think this is a great segue to kind of push into what you were just talking about, which is the fact that antibodies are are important even beyond cancer, right? And we we see that in something like Humira, which is, you know, helping every inflammatory disease under the sun. But you know, how do you extend this beyond cancer and into things like viruses or autoimmunity or something like that?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for context, you know, Humira, which you mentioned is, you know, best selling drug in the world today. It's an antibody, which uh, sequesters uh, a certain type of cytokine, which are is kind of just a circulating molecule that kind of circulates between Cells and can kind of uh, regulate signaling by kind of sequestering that. Yeah, it's been able to show efficacy across you know so many different diseases in rheumatology, in autoimmune, and all kind of auto-inflammatory conditions. So yeah, it's really clear that you know the right antibody against the right target can have kind of a massive impact for treating autoimmune disease. The flip side of that, which is somewhat kind of uh, palindromic, is that you know antibodies are typically thought of in autoimmune disease as being uh, pathogenic right so that gets back to this idea of of these auto antibodies which come from auto reactive b cells so you know these are you know we your immune system is supposed to weed these things out to kind of remove b cells and t cells and kind of their immune receptors it's supposed to weed out the ones that hit normal tissues, but in some patients, that fails, that, that process fails for whatever reason, and in some patients, it fails catastrophically. So, you know, we have a study from some of our colleagues at UCSF that looks at a particular population of patients with a disease called APS1. And, you know, these are patients where the gene that regulates that whole process of weeding out autoreactive T cells in this case, is mutated and is defective. And so the result is that patients don't weed out autoreactive cells. In fact, they have nothing but autoreactive cells. And those cells end up attacking every different tissue in the entire body. So these patients end up with, you know, women end up with ovarian insufficiency, You know, some of the men can end up with uh, attacking kind of uh, male germ tissues, you know, patients end up with pneumonitis, patients end up with kind of uh, hyperthyroidism, patients end up with every kind of autoimmune disease that you can imagine under the sun is all encapsulated in this one population of patients. The challenge, I think, for not only for these patients with APS1, but also patients with other autoimmune diseases has been, what are the actual targets of those auto-reactive B cells, of those auto-antibodies, what are they actually hitting in biology? Those targets dictate whether a patient would have ovarian insufficiency or whether they would have hyperthyroidism, whether they have pneumonitis or or what have you. But, you know, without understanding the targets of autoimmunity, we can't really understand what's going to happen to these patients. And we can't necessarily even understand how to treat those, those patients as well. So, you know, step one, I think, of solving uh, autoimmune disease is really boils down to better characterization of the targets. Because if you don't know what the target is, then you don't know what the mechanism is. And then, you know, good luck trying to kind of treat and right. solve it. Build right? a to therapy. Totally,
2: totally. And I totally see how like
1: what you have built is going to be
2: the best in class way to figure that out. Right. Because there's no really other way to do screening in the same Kind of high throughput method that you that you have invented. Speaking of, you know, I think we're 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 grateful at fifty years to have been able to partner with you in two thousand nineteen when when we co-led your seed round. The progress has been super impressive all around. But one one of the things that excited us most is how the core idea has evolved and gotten even more compelling from what you originally pitched us. And so, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution from w- what you we talked about, uh, you know, three years ago to now?
1: Yeah, you know, I think three years ago we had a lot of kind of technology ideas. You know we had some kind of clinical areas of interest, but you know, I guess one of the things I've learned is you know these things really have to harmonize in a way that is unimpeachable. you know, and so I think you know at at the earliest stages of thinking about you know a new venture or some sort of entrepreneurial idea. You know, people have a technology they're excited about, they have an application that they know something about, or maybe they're excited about it. And then, you know, they have a group of people that they like to work with. And, you know, eventually, maybe these things really come together. And maybe they kind of feedback onto one another. And, you know, for us, we've been able to leverage those relationships, leverage some of that technology expertise that, that we had kind of developed on our team, and be able to find the right applications for the technology and explore those and validate them and develop uh, some compelling uh, case studies and data around those. So, you know, that, that's that been a lot of the evolution with us is thinking about, okay, what's the right application for the technology, whether it's kind of diagnostic biomarker discovery, or whether it's kind of therapeutics development, target discovery and development. Just in, in the process of the past few years with the support of, you know, the terrific kind of backers and folks who, who have uh, kind of bravely supported this type of contrarian, uh, you know, discovery platform, we have been able to now develop some really fantastic data and, and kind of inhuman proof of concept in, in various different disease areas in cancer, in immuno-oncology. In autoimmune diseases, so you know we're it's it's been a great exploration process. Now I think you know at the end point of of the of that of that kind of validation and, and discovery period, we have a lot clearer idea of you know how this technology really makes a massive impact for patients, and you know that's kind of the nature of a quote unquote deep tech. Platform is, you know, you come in with the technology and so hopefully you find that beautiful marriage to, you know, the application that it really makes a move the needle for.
2: For sure. I mean, I think it's crazy that anybody would call it contrarian, right? Because even when you pitched it, it, it had this like, very scientific backing to it. And now that I've seen your data, it's obvious that there's really, really amazing assets that com- can pop out of this by, by just searching what kind of is already being invented in-, in human, right? Which I think is really exciting. But you know, now that you are starting to get some of these assets, how do you think about developing them? Is this something that you wanna bring to other companies and say like, we have uh, an antibody that might be interesting or a target that might be interesting? Are you doing it yourselves? Are you working with people to search for something in their interesting clinical data? Like, tell me how you think about that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think something that has has been somewhat important to us is is developing a veritable end-to-end platform technology. So, you know, not just being able to kind of nominate a target, but, you know, I think you know the, the bar is, is fairly high in, in biotechnology. You know it's uh, targets. You know some people look at targets as just a dime a dozen, and you know especially when you're bringing novel uh, ideas biologically and therapeutically to the table you know, the burden is somewhat on the company to prove that out, or at least, you know, try to approach that bar of, you know, what's necessary to convince a seasoned, experienced drug developer that, you know, this is maybe a stone that has been unturned previously by a lot of really smart people and a lot of money. (laughs) So, you know, I think uh, the great news for us is that if you have an antibody, and if you know the target of that antibody, you're, you know, zero or one steps away from having a potential drug candidate. Right. So, you know, I think that's what may uniquely empower us to be able to take that, at the very least, take that proof of concept the distance and potentially even take those programs the distance. You know, that drug development, we think that you know there's there is potential to do it more efficiently but ultimately you know really the the bottleneck is getting that clinical stage data so, you know, if we can kind of more efficiently discover and expedite the kind of preclinical advancement of these ideas, you know, we anticipate having a lot of different shots on goal. You know, there's only so many we can take ourselves as a company because of that kind of clinical stage bottleneck and because of the capital intensive nature. But, you know, we, we already have a lot of exciting ideas that, you know, we think that there's potential to you know, develop some, some nice proofs of concept around those and then, you know, find the right home for them in, in a partner organization.
2: That was a great answer. Uh, that's a good. That's a really good one.
1: Nima, I really want you
2: to reach and find your most optimistic self when answering this question. So I want you to imagine it's 10 years from now and everything has just gone perfectly.
1: What does Avail look like and what have you accomplished? You know, I hope that some of the ideas that we're developing will reach uh, patients. Uh, I hope that, you know, in, in the course of accomplishing that, that we will maybe change the drug discovery paradigm. In terms of how people think about this kind of process, this very kind of bespoke process of talking to someone about a target and looking at some literature and then just kind of developing conviction that way. We are data people and we like to think about kind of data driven uh, decision making and discovery. And so, you know, that that could end up being our kind of contribution to, you know, maybe changing the way that people think about, you know, making decisions, even at the earliest stages of, of drug discovery. So, you know, we're excited to kind of advance that line of thinking and to kind of be the champions, you know, really um, holding the torch for, you know, data-driven discovery and decision making directly from humans in um, on day one. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms of how the company looks, you know, I think we, we want to keep building a really awesome team of, of great people that enjoy working together and, you know, can can do great things and enjoy the process, you know, through the good times and the bad times and and, and really enjoy the science, enjoy kind of pushing the boundary of, of what's possible to kind of assay and measure with the science and, you know, be hopefully uh, able to kind of uh, translate those in a way that, that's meaningful and that kind of makes, you know, a big difference for patients across not only in cancer, but also in other disease areas. You know, immunology is really broad, right? It's, uh, you know, Now, over the past decade, I think we've really started to appreciate how immunology is tied to oncology. But, you know, there's there's so many different diseases and patients that are touched by kind of aberrant immunologic syndromes and things that are just so nasty and intractable where we need better data. So you know, I I kind of see our impacts. You know, if if uh, we're able to kind of accomplish our goals and kind of you know you know be able to kind of make that progress incrementally, and then hopefully you know you know make really leaps and bounds forward, as being thinking about how to influence immunologic disease at the level of, of therapeutic kind of discovery and development, and and maybe even at the level of, of how we even diagnose and how we even understand these diseases, period, right? You know, these a lot of these immunologic diseases are so diverse. You know, think about lupus. It's, you know dozens of different kind of subtypes of the disease that don't really resemble each other and you know other than the fact of you know what we what we call them you know in some (laughs) icd-9 icd-10 diagnostic kind of you know reimbursement code right so i think you know there's just so much potential to implement this idea of precision medicine but you know it's it's a really lofty idea and you know ultimately the rubber needs to meet the road and i think that you know we have the potential as a company to be very impactful in in how we characterize these diseases and how we uh, treat them as well.
2: Love that. Thank you so much for joining us Nima. Thanks guys.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode of Translation. If you're an author of an upcoming paper in bio or know of any interesting papers dropping soon and wanna hear from the authors, send us an email to translation at 50.vc. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye